one of the reasons my practice became so successful because we started pioneering these new technologies. And when we presented them, obviously the media gradually became very interested in cosmetic procedures, women's magazines, TV outlets, the news. That's also how I ended up getting beauty editors and producers and TV people coming to my practice to not only ask about them and do stories about them, but also to become patients as well. You're listening to How I Scaled My Aesthetic Clinic, the podcast where the most high-performing owners of aesthetic clinics and med spas from all over the world tell their stories and share the strategies and insights that allowed them to grow their business from often humble beginnings to soaring success. If you've ever tried to build a clinic, you'll know that it takes a lot more than just being a great doctor or practitioner, and it helps when you learn from the best in the industry. So join me, Miriam Shaviv, host and director of content at Brainstorm Digital, as we explore how aesthetic clinic owners just like you have developed the mindset, skills, and experience to transform their businesses and how you can do the same. Let's jump in. M-Sculpt, the Madonna Lift, Cellulase. These are some of the top treatments of the last 20 years, and one man has played a crucial role developing them all. Dr. Bruce Katz is one of the great pioneers of the aesthetic industry, constantly expanding the boundaries of aesthetic practice. He is medical director of Juba Skin and Laser Center in Manhattan and Woodside. But this is more than a cosmetic practice. It's also an active dermatology, cosmetic, and laser surgery research center, which has been performing clinical studies for more than 20 years and participated in more than 30 studies. It is also the only world training center for doctors to learn smart lipo, cellulase, and sculpture procedures. If you haven't been trained by Dr. Katz, you may recognize him from Good Morning America, CNN, The View, and many more national outlets where he regularly appears. And he's regularly cited by New York Magazine as one of the best doctors in New York. Dr. Katz, we're very excited to have you on the podcast. Welcome. Thank you very much for the lovely introduction, Miriam. Every word was true. <laughs> so let's start at the beginning. Um, in previous conversations that we've had, um, you've told me that the key to building your practice um, has been doing clinical studies on innovative new technologies. So let's start, let's talk a little bit about the very first one you were involved in. Which was the first one? Well, actually, the first one was a general dermatology study we did. Uh, my, my former partner, Dr. Alexander Fisher, was a very famous professor at NYU Medical Center uh, in contact dermatitis, skin allergies. So our first study was when we discovered people were getting allergic to bacitracin ointment. And it was first, the first study, really, that uh, showed that bacitracin, which is a very common topical antibiotic ointment, uh, can produce allergies for people just by using it on a regular basis. So that was the first study we published that in the Journal of the American Academy of Dermatology. Um, and that was sort of my interest initially uh, in doing contact dermatitis because I was a partner with Dr. Fisher. Um, but my main interest was always doing cosmetic dermatology. In fact, I remember when I finished my uh, residency and I spoke to my chairman of dermatology at Columbia University Medical Center, 
and I told him, he wanted me to go to be a bench scientist at NIH. And I said to him, you know, I was really interested in cosmetic dermatology and cosmetic surgery. And he said, you know, Dr. Katz, that's not serious medicine. I said, well, I know, but that's what I'm interested in. So he actually gave me my own cosmetic surgery uh, clinic at Columbia Presbyterian Medical Center. It was really the first cosmetic uh, dermatology and cosmetic surgery clinic at a major medical center. Um, I started getting interested in liposuction. That was one of my first major interests. I had studied with Dr. Saul Askin in Connecticut, who was one of the pioneers uh, in the U.S. with liposuction. And we actually went, Miriam, to the first International Liposuction Society meeting. I think that was in 1983 or 84 in, uh, in France. And we learned from the pioneers of liposuction, Gerard Alouz, uh, and other scientists from Europe, and we brought it back to the States. And it was interesting how we got into that. So at the time, you didn't really have the interest in the research. It sounds like you kind of fell into that almost by accident. Well, right, because whenever you, know, you get introduced to a new technology, a new procedure, you really want to find out if it works. So that's what I realized. That was a key element in my practice to really do scientific studies of these new technologies to determine which ones worked and which were which ones didn't you know a lot of companies come out with technologies and they make claims about them but the only real way to determine if these technologies um, do what they are claimed to do is to do controlled placebo controlled studies randomized studies uh, and then publish them in peer-reviewed journals so that other doctors, when they look at these technologies, know that there's real science behind them. But you wanted to look into it yourself and not rely on others. Exactly, exactly. And you know that was also one of the reasons my practice became so successful because we started pioneering these new technologies. And when we presented them, obviously the media gradually became very interested in cosmetic procedures, women's magazines, TV outlets, the news. That's also how I ended up getting beauty editors and producers and TV people coming to my practice to not only ask about them and do stories about them, but also to become patients as well. So we'll definitely touch on that aspect of things in a second. Um, but when you first started with the research, did you really, did you understand at the time what kind of impact it was going to have, or was it just more of an academic thing for you? Well, I think it was, it was both, you know, I didn't, I was interested in it. This is something I always loved about my field. So my interest in it was really what got me going into it. And then I realized how important it was uh, for, you know, growing my practice and, and then being asked to lecture nationally as well as internationally. So how do you decide which technologies to, to look into? Um, obviously, there's, there's many different developments. How do you decide what looks like it has potential and what you want to investigate further? Well, you know, it actually, it, that actually occurs in two ways. You know, going to meetings all the time, as I do, um, you see technologies that are being either promoted in the exhibit hall or being uh, reported by doctors at the meetings. And that was one way to learn about them. And then, you know, eventually companies came to me and asked me to do their FDA trials for these technologies. 
because they knew we had a very, um, you know, reliable and, you know, experienced research team that allowed us to do these studies in a fashion that, you know, would make, meet the criteria for FDA trials and also the, our ability to get them published in major journals. Okay, so let's talk about, um, about the impact that all this has actually had um, on your practice and on your clinic. Um, you mentioned a few different things. First of all, you mentioned um, that uh, the, 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 um, beauty editors started, it started attracting attention. People started coming to the practice. Was that, was that one thing that started happening? Yes, that was certainly one thing that really helped grow the practice. Uh, and then, you know, that sort of turns into stories and magazines and then people read about them. Uh, when we came out with Smart Lipo, that was in 2005 and 2006. That was a major new technology using lasers to do liposuction. And we found out that not only was it good to suction fat and remove fat and melt fat, but also tighten skin at the same time. So uh, People Magazine uh, heard about this and they asked me uh, to do a story even before it was FDA approved because I had been reporting it about the study we were doing at a meeting in London, in fact, where you live. And I think it was the FACES meeting, if I recall. And uh, People Magazine called me when I got back to New York and said, we want to do a story. This is obviously, you know, a great new technology. But we told them, you know, I'll be happy to do the story, but we, you cannot publish it until we got the FDA approval because we didn't want any, you know, media attention to something that was not FDA approved and the FDA you know, would not be happy about that. So they embargo the study, they came in and they, um, you know, interviewed me. In fact, they said to me, this is very interesting. They said to me that, you know, this is so important. We're going to put you on the cover of People magazine. <laughs> so I spent a day with a photographer just having, you know, hours and hours of photos and at the end, I said to him, you know, if Brad Pitt and Angelina Jolie, you know, get divorced, I'm off the cover. They'll be on the cover. And I think it was Britney. So what happened as, you know, he, the photographer said, no, don't worry, you're going to be on the cover. And then when it was ready to be published after the FDA approved the technology, Britney Spears got divorced. And I was off the cover. <laughs> <laughs> But I had a five-page story in People Magazine about Smart Lipo, and that was probably the longest story ever published in People Magazine about a new cosmetic surgery technology. And were you surprised by the interest of, you know, of, 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 of such populist press, essentially, in, the, in these things? I was. But you know, as cosmetic procedures became more and more popular, they became less invasive as well, so that more and more people, and also more affordable, more and more people were interested in having them done. You know, don't forget, when I first started doing this in the early 80s, cosmetic procedures were, were thought to be a major luxury. They were very expensive, and most people didn't think they could afford it. Uh, most cosmetic procedures required surgery at that time. There were very few minimally invasive or non-invasive procedures. So when Smart Lipo came out and then we realized how safe it was, we could do it under local tumescent anesthesia in our offices, no longer in the hospital, um, more and more people realized that these are procedures that could be done you know, at much lower expense and also 
very safely without major side effects and very little downtime as, as a matter of fact too. So in terms of attracting um, the publicity for, for the practice, um, obviously it, it takes on a little bit of a life of its own, but was that something that at any point you began to um, actually cultivate systematically um, or literally is it as I, as I described it just took on a life of its own and you became the go-to person? Well, you know, I didn't really have to cultivate it, fortunately. I mean, we, you know, we were having companies come to us asking the, us to do these trials for them. And over the years, we've done trials for neuromodulator companies, toxin companies, filler companies, laser companies, energy-based devices, uh, big pharma as well. You know, we've done studies on new uh, cutting-edge treatments for acne, eczema, um, for psoriasis. So it really evolved very naturally because, you know, we had a full-time, you know, large research team that we, you know, we have a big office in Midtown Manhattan. So we were able to have our research team right there. And, you know, I would work with them and we had lots of subjects, you know, from just our, our patient database, but, you know, people heard about them. And uh, we were very quick to bring in subjects so we could do these studies very quickly, very efficiently, and then get them published not only in major peer-reviewed journals, but then I'd be asked to lecture about them at national and international meetings. And how easy is it to leverage um, some of those internet, some of those um, media appearances into bookings? Because um, I know, for example, with public relations, very often clinic owners complain that, you know, they're, they're in all the newspapers, but no one actually ever called in any great numbers. That is clearly not the case for you. So how, what, what do you think the difference was? Um, you know, some of it's luck, you know. Um, we are lucky that we identified technologies that uh, really had a mainstream appeal I remember when you know I first heard about Smart Lipo, I went to Brazil to learn from a doctor there. And I went to Italy uh, to learn from the doctors who, who were just starting to use this technology because the company LN or DECA was the company that had developed this Smart Lipo technology. And that's when I realized this was gonna be a new thing. And I brought it back to the States and convinced one of the laser companies to license it and uh, do the FDA trials for, for Smart Lipo. Um, and when you have that level of national exposure, do you need to do any other marketing? Um, you know, fortunately, we haven't had to do a lot of marketing over the years because the technology speaks for itself. You know, if you have something that is innovative, that's new, uh, that's breakthrough in terms of whether it's non-invasive and you can do things that formally had to do it invasively, that is safe, most importantly, and has little down or no downtime at all, it just, you know, it gradually, it comes. And, um, you know, the media is there, they're interested, and um, the companies are interested in when they're coming out with a new technology. And then, you know, meeting organizers hear about it and they ask me to lecture about uh, these technologies at meetings because it brings other doctors to the meetings. What do you think that the that they are looking for? You know, obviously there, there are other people developing new technologies, um, but uh, as a former journalist, I know that obviously um, journalists are looking for people uh, who have particular things to offer. 
What do you think that they're looking for um, in, in, in interviewees on, on this subject? Well, you know, as, as you really know, Miriam, the media is always looking for new stories to attract their own followers to read more or, or watch, watch more on TV or go to their websites and, um, and their Instagram pages. So, you know, we call it feeding the beast that, you know, media is always interested in new things. So if you have new things to offer, if people know that these are real and they work and you're not just trying to promote things that are fluff and that really have really no benefits, um, you eventually develop, you know, a reputation for, you know, being honest about anything that they are interested in reporting. And when they report on it, they obviously get a lot of interest for their own followers. So getting back to the, some of the research that you've done, what is the piece of research that most excited you? Well, you know, I, I don't know that there's one in particular, you know, I'm excited now for a new cellulite treatment that we're doing studies on, which is uh, CCH. Um, it's collagenase clostridium histolyticum. This is a new technology that will allow us to treat cellulite with only injections. I'm excited about a uh, new study that we're doing on MSculp, which will be introducing a new technology very soon for not only uh, muscle toning, but also fat removal. I'm excited about a new technology we're doing studies on that's uh, called Tempture, which is a, a new skin tightening as well as fat removal technology that's also non-invasive as well as like M-Sculpt and Sculpture, which is non-invasive, a laser for non-invasive fat removal. And then, you know, we're excited about this new uh, Daxi botulinum toxin that we're doing studies for Revance, which is a long-lasting toxin. Uh, that's, these are also, that, that, that's a lot of things. Are there any trends in the in, in, you asked, you asked what I'm interested in? Is, is there, is, are there any trends though that you see in terms of what's being developed um, and, and the interesting areas to look out for? Uh, well, trends, I think in pharmaceuticals, there are new uh, drugs and topical agents that are going to be working for acne, new monoclonal antibody uh, technologies that'll be helping uh, people with atopic dermatitis, eczema, and psoriasis. Uh, so, you know, there are really exciting technologies really in a lot of different areas, whether it's cosmetic dermatology or general dermatology for our, you know, our general derm type of issues that, you know, still require uh, improved treatments. You're obviously at the forefront of all of this. Um, one thing that I do hear sometimes from, from clinic owners is that they're nervous about introducing really new treatments to the clinic. They want to wait, they want someone else to be the guinea pig. Um, how do you, what, what's the best way that you have found to introduce new treatments to, to, to your patients? Obviously to you, but now I would assume that is your, that is your thing. So you probably attract patients who really want the new um, cutting edge treatments, but have you found that there is any kind of um, secret or, or best practice to introduce new technologies to people? Well, I think, you know, science speaks for itself. And you're here today with the COVID uh, pandemic, science and data are what really drives uh, innovation. And the same, it's the same thing for um, cosmetic dermatology and general dermatology. 
things that are innovative. Um, you know, you ask about secrets. There, there are really no secrets. If you have good studies and people know that you've done your research well and, uh, you know, you have a good team of people who can do the treatments efficiently and safely, uh, that's, that's the big secret. It's an open secret. And I think I'm not the only one. A lot of my colleagues in dermatology and plastic surgery uh, do the same thing. I mean, they, they know that to uh, attract patients to come in for uh, your treatments at your center, you need to have things that work, that are you know, safe, and that uh, really are cutting edge and innovative. And people still like you know, the old word about something that's new always attracts people. What about the duds? There must have been some duds over the years. <laughs> of course, you know we, we've we've looked at technologies, we've done studies where uh, treatments didn't pan out. There's one, you know, one study we started just about six months ago. I won't mention a name, but it was a technology that seemed very innovative um, uh, for skin tightening, uh, and you know, we started doing the studies and realized the side effects were, you know, not amenable to this technology going forward. So we had to go back to the, uh, you know, to the uh, bench again and work out the issues that were causing the side effects. So we've had studies we've done that didn't pan out. That's always the case. And you have to take that risk. I mean, there will be studies that you gear up for and you're excited about, but then doing the Double blind, random, randomized studies will tell you if it works or not. So nothing's 100%, and you got to take risks. That that's part of part of you know doing this type of work. There are always risks of things not working out, of side effects developing. But when you do the studies, that's how you find out. You don't want to introduce a technology that some company claims works, and then you find out, oh my God, my patients are having side effects. They're not going to be happy. Uh, that's that, that's something you always want to be careful about. Um, your your practice is essentially built around um, is built around this innovation and the research um, and the cutting edgeness of it. That that is um, a word. Um, should other you know you've been you've been doing this for a long time. How easy is this now for other younger practice owners to build up a practice in the same way? Well, you know, it's never easy. I mean, but I think if people are diligent, if they're willing to explore, and the way you find out about these things are going to meetings, um, whether it's national meetings, I think international meetings are important. I know I learn a lot from my colleagues around the world when I go to the European meetings or meetings in Asia, South America, um, Australia. I mean, a lot of doctors there are doing innovative things that we haven't heard about in the States. So you have to go to meetings and learn about them, read journals. I, you know, I have a stack of journals here in my study that I'm always reading about to learn about what new um, procedures, what, you know, what new treatments that I think have potential. And you can call the companies that are, are bringing them out or, or doing studies. You ask if you can participate as a study site um and that's a good way to get sort of get into this if, if you haven't started doing research first of all you want to have um you know you can start with one research person in in your office or at your center make sure they have good experience doing studies start there 
and you know start with one study make sure it's being done properly and you have to work with your your team you can't just say you know, to your research person you you do the study and check back with with me when it's done i have weekly meetings with my research team you know we we have you know a basically a uh, a meeting set up so that we go through every study we are currently involved with and you know what we want to know how many subjects are coming in what kind of um you know issues are, are developing if there are any you know problems with the study and start with one initially make sure you finish it well everything's documented really well and once you've done that and uh then you go on to more studies and then as you get busier and busier bring in more research people. A lot of people are concerned that it's an expense to hire someone to do research. Well, it is an expense and you need, you know, the research facility, you need a space to do it, but it does pay its dividends big time. So I think that's a really important thing to do. What were the, what were the obstacles, obviously, as, as you, as you, you've grown this to enormous proportions, what was the biggest obstacle really to your growth? Um, you know, I think, you know, hiring the right people. That's always the biggest issue, making sure you have the right team working with you. Um, you know, a lot of doctors think they know everything. They have big egos. You have to put your ego at the door and learn from other people and learn from your research team because they are the ones who are really, you know, at the forefront. They are on the ground dealing with subjects and making sure people come back for their follow-ups, that's really important in any study. If your subjects don't come back on, on time for the right visits in, in those windows of time that need to be done, your study falls apart. So you have to listen to your team, learn from them, meet regularly, and um, it, but people are, you know, it's people issues. You wanna make sure you have the right team of people and that they're well, working what, what, hard. What are your criteria for finding the right people? This comes up a lot. People say to me, hire the right people. They don't necessarily, very often it comes down to gut instinct, but do you have anything more concrete than that? How do you have a process? How do you hire the right people? Well, the first thing to do is look at their resume, their CV, and uh, see what kind of experience they have. You know, you can advertise in, on LinkedIn, you can advertise on different um, websites, you know, Indeed, other ones that, you know, people look, look to for uh, potential jobs, and then look at their resume first. Screen the resumes, that's the first thing. Make sure they have the right experience. Then you, you interview them. And I believe in doing more than one interview with one person. So you interview them initially, get your initial impressions. Have, I have my practice manager uh, interview them. Uh, my other research, my, uh, my, my head of research uh, interview them. And then we'll bring them back a second time. Because you know often the first interview everyone is on their best behavior. They're, they're, um, you know, really very careful about answering everything. But when you bring them back a second time and people think they may have a good possibility for the job, you learn more about them. They ease up a little bit and you can really get a better idea about if they're the right fit for your team. And personalities are important also. I mean, I've had, you know, research people come in and they have great you know, they look great on paper, but then when you speak to them, you realize they don't really have that, they're not that motivated. They're not that excited about doing the studies that we're doing. You wanna make sure they know what kind of uh, studies they're gonna be working on. 
And, you know, some people are not that efficient. They're not that organized. Those are also important things to look at when you're interviewing people for uh, your research team. So, and then also one other thing, Barry, we want to make, we tell them we have a three month probation period. So when we decide on someone, we say, you know, you have three months to show that you are the right fit for the team. And sometimes I tell them also, you may find that we're not the right fit for you. So, you know, we give them three months. If they're not the right, right person for the job, then we, um, we don't continue with them. Listening to everything you said over the last few minutes, um, it's very clear, as is true, I think, from the owners of many businesses in every industry, that your own interests and skills must have evolved a lot from a from the doctor on the cosmetic side to researcher, but now manager of an enormous organization. Um, how how is that? How, how do you how did you handle that evolution? Well, I'm always trying to learn myself. You know, I I gone to um, management programs at meetings, and you know. Doctors generally are not great business people. They're not great managers. <laughs> that's, a, that's unfortunately the case. And, you know, I always try to learn on, you know, improve my management skills. I ask my team in my practice. So we have, I think, almost 40 people in our practice. I ask for feedback there, too, to see if uh, people have recommendations for me managing better. Um, and always be well, humble. That, it must be very difficult to listen to the feedback for that. That takes a brave business owner. <laughs> it can be humbling at times. It can. But that's, that's important. Don't think uh, you know everything because a lot of times we don't know what we don't know. And uh, that's important to keep learning, keep educating yourself. And looking, we're going to go for a break in a second, but actually that's a, that's a fantastic point. And looking back now at yourself, when you were a when you were just starting out with your practice, what do you know now that you would like to tell your younger self? What is the most important lesson that you've learned over this time that you wish you had known back then? Well, I think you know it's important to meet regularly. Sometimes, when I think when I first started out, I sort of let my first research person, you know, loose on the research, and I wasn't really keeping. Uh, you know, tabs on what was going on and things started falling apart. Um, visits weren't being done regularly. So people, you know, our subjects were coming in outside of the correct intervals for the visits. So that was causing problems for the study. Um, you know, not making sure that they were organized and that keeping track of everything that, you know, all the, uh, the documentation was being done, not only being done, but being done on time, because that's also an important criteria for any study. Everything has to be documented in a timely fashion. So I learned, I learned the hard way. You know, you, you find out by not doing things correctly, the next time around, you do them correctly. There will be ways you it's learn. Really, it's really the, the bit that, the biggest learning curve, it sounds like, is really the managerial skills Exactly. Learning how to manage, being time efficient, um, you know, keeping meetings, you know, at, at, you know, we have, a, we have a 30 minute meeting for research. Everything has to be done for our marketing team. We want to do it in a timely fashion. You know, people have to know that they have to get their points out properly. We have a, um, 
you know, particular schedule of what has to be discussed at a meeting. We keep on time and uh, make sure people are being efficient time-wise and also uh, being managing efficiently too. So as you said, um, doctors don't necessarily have those business skills. That's something that you have learned to, along the way. How easy is that yeah. to get the other doctors on the team to learn? It, you know, it's sort of like herding cats at times. <laughs> <laughs> but no, also having a good team of doctors working with you, and we have PAs and nurse practitioners. Again, you need to, yeah, you need to uh, find the right people. I've certainly made mistakes along the way of hiring the wrong people too. So um, you learn as you go. But most importantly, to learn and to really minimize mistakes and minimizing errors in choosing people and doing, you know, you know, studies correctly. Uh, it's good to go to management seminars, go to web you know, webinars about how to manage. Uh, that's really important. And, you know, over the years we've brought in consultants. That's also been a, a big help to help us not only with our practice management, but also with our research management, you know, also doctors think, you know, it's consultants don't really, Pay for themselves well if you pick the right consultants they will they will pay for themselves too and save you a lot of grief and a lot of expense over the years okay fantastic we're just going to go for a very quick break um, when we come back um, we're going to turn the clock back to 1999 um, and talk about the about the opening of your medispa Hey, it's Miriam here again, and during this break, I have a quick question for you. How easy are you finding it to market to your patients now that your clinic is reopened after lockdown? Lots of practice owners are struggling. They're not sure what to say to patients in this new normal. People are still recovering from the shock and the trauma of quarantine. Many have lost jobs and income. Sending the same old blunt promotions just doesn't feel appropriate anymore. You might be operating with a smaller team and a smaller marketing budget. And reopening your clinic is so much work, you don't even have the headspace to focus on marketing right now. If you can relate, let me introduce you to Inbox Express. That's our library of marketing emails written specifically for aesthetic clinics and med spas just like yours. They're designed to make your marketing to your patient database as easy, as quick, and as effective as possible. So you can get patients back through your doors again and again, even in these difficult times. All you need to do to get these emails working for your clinic or med spa is to fill in a few blanks, upload them to your marketing platform and hit send. You don't have to worry about messaging because it's all done for you. Each template takes an average of one to two minutes to customize, making your marketing more manageable during this pressured time. To find out more, visit inbox-express.com. That's inbox-express.com. I'll include the address in the show notes so just take a quick look in a text under the podcast and you'll find it there. Now back to the show. Okay, everyone. Welcome back to How I Scaled My Aesthetic um, Clinic. We're here with Dr. Bruce Katz. Um, and we're going to take a quick step back to 1999 um, when you opened what I believe is the first, was the first Medispa in New York City. Is that correct? That is correct, but actually it was the first Medispa in the world. We actually coined and trademarked the term Medispa. <laughs> well, hard to believe. That, how, did that, how did that come about? What was the gap in the market that you, that you saw? 
Well, you know, I had just decided to uh, move from my current office, which was on Fifth, Ave Fifth Avenue and 82nd Street. Uh, it was a, a really beautiful townhouse, but it was small and I was outgrowing it. So I knew I needed to look for more space and I had found a great space in Midtown Manhattan. My current, my current office at the time was on the Upper East Side, but I, in order to find the right space, I had to go to Midtown Manhattan. And that was a big leap because it was a large space. But, you know, I wanted to do something that was different. And, and I, what I realized was that medicine at the time, you know, was very sort of sterile and you go to a doctor's office and it would look very professional, but very, you know, austere and uh, very straight laced. And I thought that, you know, I was doing a lot of cosmetic procedures that something that would, would resonate with, with people was to create a new environment, which would be in my new center that had spa-like qualities to it, that, you know, we would have a very high level of service. Uh, we would have a beautiful environment with music playing, a very comfortable, um, a very comfortable setting, very luxurious and, and beautiful facility and also not just have spa treatments, which obviously were always popular, but to create spa treatments that had real medical value, that have facials and body treatments that we incorporated actual prescription strength med medicine so that when you had a facial, it wasn't just fluff and, and moisturizers. We were using prescription medicines that had true anti-aging benefits that could only really be done in a, in a doctor's facility. Uh, body treatments that had anti-aging um, creams in them that we incorporated Retin-A, Tretinoin, uh, Tazarotene, uh, Retinols that uh, you know applied to the skin would have anti-aging benefits and treat sun damage at the same time. So we couldn't call it a spa because it wasn't a spa, but it, we had medical treatment. So we decided we were thinking of maybe derma spa which didn't sound quite right. And then we came on, I came on the term Medispa, which really resonated. It was a medical spa that we had spa-like, you know, environment and facility, but also medical value to these treatments. And that's, I coined it, I trademarked it. And uh, the rest was history. Fact, how do you feel about the fact that you trademarked it and now everyone's using it? Well, Miriam, that was a problem because, you know, once... The story came out about our new Medispa in the New York Times. We called it Juva. It was Juva Medispa. We called it actually Juva Skin and Laser Center, Juva Medispa. And the New York Times came to interview us. And once the story came out in the New York Times about this new innovative uh, facility, everyone wanted to use it. And, you know, I really couldn't uh, enforce the term because I'd have to have my attorneys, my patent attorneys, <laughs> send out letters to everyone and it just became a major expense and I realized uh, it you know was not something that I could really enforce and keep for myself you know unfortunately what happened is that a lot of um, not very professional people started um, using the term medispa or med spa uh, it wasn't you know really regulated and made um, you know with strict medical um, sterile technique and you know, real value, valuable treatments, and sort of got out of hand a bit. So I, it was really positive at the beginning, but 
uh, eventually became something that was not as what I expected it to be. I mean, we kept it the way we wanted it, but... Do you now shy away from that term because of what... Well, you know, it's, there are too many, well, there are too many Medispas out there that are not well-trained, that don't have the right personnel, that um, don't do treatments that really work very well. Um, they're just doing it to make money. Um, and a lot of doctors who are in other specialties, aside from our core specialties, started, you know, putting their names on Medispas, not going there and seeing people, but just, you know, being paid to have their name on the door so that other people who are not professionals uh, can do these procedures. So it got to the point where it really uh, was less than professional and, um, you know, not something I really want to identify with. So do you think that, um, that there's been real damage? It sounds like you think that there's been real damage essentially done to the Medispa industry and that it's been devalued in some way. Would that, would that be right? Yeah, well, that's true because people started having side effects. They got burns from you know, laser treatments that were not being done properly by trained professionals um, and getting scarred by treatments that were not done because they weren't using the right parameters and settings on lasers and energy-based devices or getting burned from chemical peels that were not, you know, being done properly. So it, you know, it started to get out of hand. And um, I, you know, I, assume, I assume you think, though, that the concept is still sound, that the concept of the medicine side plus the spa side put together is still sound, or has that been damaged as well through what's happened um, in, some of these, in some of these places? Well, when, you know, I, I think the concept is sound, that's that's why we decided to do it and if it's done professionally with well-trained people and uh with uh, legitimate treatments that work and are effective without you know significant downtime i think it works but a lot of a lot of people out there are not doing it that way unfortunately and i tell you know i tell people when i'm interviewed and in, you know in the media i say you know when you go to these places ask about the experience of the, of the people who are working there uh, see their before and after photos. See what kind of work they do. You want to make sure before you uh, subject yourself to these people that you're in a place that is uh, professional, that is well-trained, that has legitimate uh, sterile technique. Um, you know, those are all important things to ask about. So obviously differentiation is a massive issue in the, in the industry, um, given again how saturated now the Medispa side of things is. How do the how do you think that the good providers should be differentiating themselves from the from the from the less good less good medicines? Well, you know that's a good that's a good question. I mean, you know, you have to promote yourself as as a professional. I tell my my um, patients and I tell people when I'm being interviewed, make sure you go into the core specialties: dermatology, plastic surgery oculoplastic surgery and facial plastic surgery. Those are the four core specialties that are specifically trained for these cosmetic treatments. And don't go to other professionals that really aren't well-trained. They don't have the uh, credentials. They don't have the sterile technique and the right procedures to keep you safe. And that's, that's the bottom line. You don't wanna go, even though a lot of these places charge less, you know, it goes back to the old, you know, saying that, you know, you get what you pay for. And unfortunately, too many people get burnt and scarred from these 
med spas that really don't know what they're doing. Looking at the evolution of the entire industry, um, do you think there's a new concept coming? Like, is there something that's coming next, essentially? Well, you know, what's coming next will be procedures and technologies that have less and less downtime uh, or no downtime that are less and less invasive to the point of being non-invasive that require very few treatments. Hopefully one treatment would be the gold standard. If you can get uh, something done effectively and safely with no downtime and one treatment, that's sort of the gold standard for what will come eventually. We don't have that now, I don't think, in any technology. And uh, most importantly, is safe. And in terms of the the spa side of things, um, obviously, at the, when you when you set up the first meta spa twenty years ago, um, you know the, the comfort and the kind of pampering level, you know that that was distinguishing. Um, what do you have to do now um, in order to in order to differentiate in that area? What are the real keys there to the to the customer experience, patient experience? Um, especially when everyone is offering that, that, that as well. Well, again, you know, once, you know, I think you want to have a, a really upscale facility, uh, a great team of people who are well-trained. You want your front office people, your nurses and medical assistants to be uh, top-notch, to know that, you know, they, they are doing everything in a professional way, uh, that they know how to operate, the technologies that they are using, um, that, you know, they have the right personalities. You want them to be inviting and service-oriented and personable. Um, you want people to feel welcome and comfortable when they come into your facility so that, um, you know, people are nervous when they come in for any cosmetic procedure to, to start with. So you don't want people at your front desk who are cold and unfriendly and not welcoming. Um, I'm always told that our staff at Juva, are, you know, they go above and beyond to help our patients and are friendly and welcoming and, you know, do their best that they can. Let them know it's like I say to my, my, uh, my staff, when someone new comes in, you welcome them, you introduce them by your name and, um, you know, say welcome to Juva and make them feel comfortable and do whatever it takes to make them feel at home like you're welcoming them to your own home. That's that's our sort of mantra at Juva. And I guess I guess lots of businesses talk about doing that, um, but at the end of the day, that does not always happen. So I guess that it's still that when you really do manage to create that relationship with the patients, um, it is still a true um, differentiator. Right. So you, you raise a very important point, Miriam. So how do you make sure that continues to happen? So what what do we do? Uh, we monitor phone calls that our front office people have with our patients when they call the office. Um, you know, we check that they have a mirror in front of their station so that they're smiling when they're answering the phones. Um, we have cameras in our office, surveillance cameras. You know, they're not in any private locations or exam rooms, but in the public spaces. So even when I'm away, our staff knows that they're being monitored and that they are being professional and things are not, you know, sort of getting sloppy and, you know, they're not getting careless and that they, I can watch them wherever I go in the world. I look at my, my phone, I can see where those eight cameras are pointing and knowing that my staff, uh, and they know that I'm doing that, which um, keeps them on their toes. And you have to keep monitoring 
you have to keep checking calls you have to check you know logs of of uh, what your uh, staff are doing in terms of making sure products are are not expiring that uh, you know sterility is being maintained that things are being autoclaved properly and that sterile technique is being uh, observed at all times particularly yes. nowadays so there's really two things here a there's very high levels of accountability amongst your staff Mm -hmm. uh, and yeah. the second thing is it sounds like it's highly systematized um, so that you know that everything is done the way that you want it to be done. Exactly. And, you know, we're a triple AHC uh, accredited facility, so we get surveyed every three years. So that also raises the level and the standards of care that we have to observe you know, to the level of, you know, like a hospital. I mean, we get surveyed every three years and we have you know, a person come in and looks at everything in our practice to make sure, um, you know, administratively things are being done properly in terms of making sure that our records are appropriate, financial records, uh, patient records, uh, logs that are being kept about, you know, the sterility of things and our uh, products are being carefully monitored. You know, there's, there's an expression I um, use all the time. My staff is probably tired of hearing it. <laughs> but I always say trust. No, two expressions actually. One is trust, but verify. Okay. And that the devil is in the details. Those are two things that I am always saying. And I'll say, Dr. Katz, uh, yeah, trust, but verify. We know. Devil's in the details. We know. And uh, that should be everyone's mantra when you're running a facility like, like what we do. Because essentially, the, the your reputation and patient outcomes depend on getting every little detail right. Um, and I guess, exactly. I guess when you're when you're a, when you're a smaller facility, very often I would imagine that the uh, and this is definitely what I hear that the um, that the clinic owner can be very very um, very overwhelmed and can't take care of all the details. But you have set up systems which allow that which allow that to happen. That's right. And that's, that's the secret. There is a secret. That's the secret to running a uh, top-notch, reputable, um, you know, and, and well-known um, center and, and office. And as small as you are, uh, you have to, as small as office it is, it could be a, a doctor and a front office receptionist and one nurse, you still have to do all those things. Perhaps I'm gonna we're gonna end with one question, which is that you have obviously um, influenced a great number of people um, over the years. Who has influenced you? Well, I've had a lot of mentors that have helped me over the years. Um, you know, first of all, uh, you know, my family. My family has been very supportive over the years, so that's always really number one in anyone's life. You know, need to help. You know, I spend a lot of time working in my office, traveling. When I get home, you know, after seeing patients all day, you know, I, I often have to work on lectures or publications and, you know, plan on trips and meetings that I have to go to. So having a supportive family and a spouse or partner, that's really uh, important. And I've had great mentors over the years. My former partner, Alexander Fisher, who was my, one of my first mentors when I first started practicing. You know, having someone who was world famous in his field of uh, skin allergies and a professor at NYU really taught me a lot. Um, surgical mentor, Dr. Larry Field, 
uh, he was a famous uh, dermatologic surgeon as well as Dr. Saul Askin. Uh, they were mentors of mine early on when I first started out and showed me how to do not only uh, how to run a practice well, how to you know have a good team of people, how to do research well, and also how to lecture well. Um, those are all, and, um, and many others who I can't even you know name who really helped me over the years just from learning from them. Dr. St Sam Stegman, who is a giant in our field of dermatologic surgery, uh, as well as other people. What was the main thing that you learned from these, from, from, from these mentors? I, I learned, first of all, to be honest about whatever you're talking about, whether it be lecturing or doing studies or treating patients. You have to have integrity and uh, not stray, not take the easy way out. Always make sure you dot your I's and cross your T's and every, everything you do. That's really, that's really, uh, that'll always um, hold you well. And if you're not sure about something, ask your colleagues, learn from colleagues still. I still learn from my, not only my colleagues, but my associates in my office, my, my uh, doctors who I work with, my PAs and nurse practitioners, my staff, uh, my practice manager. I'm always learning from them too. Um, you know, be open to these things. Don't think you know everything because you don't. That is a, a wonderful point on which, on which to end. Um, thank you very much. Um, it was an absolute pleasure having you as a, as, a, as a guest on the podcast. If people want to get in touch with you, where is the best place to find you? Well, they can go to our website, uh, www.juvaskin.com, uh, our Instagram page, Juva Skin and Laser Center. Uh, you can call my office. I can give you the number. It's 212-688-5882. I'm, uh, I'm in Midtown Manhattan on uh, 56th and Park Avenue. We're in Midtown. If people want to come and visit, you're always welcome. Fantastic. Thank you so much for being a guest on How I, How I Scaled My Aesthetic Clinic. Um, and for everyone else, we will see you on the next episode.